0: Welcome to The Social World Podcast, I'm Dave Niven, and this podcast is going to be um, a record, if you like, of the debate that happened at the BASCAN Congress. BASCAN is the British Association for the Study and Prevention of Child Abuse and Neglect, and their congress was held over four days at Edinburgh University, with 800 delegates, 600 from the UK and 200 from abroad. It was a fantastic affair and uh, one of the key moments was this debate which was hell heard by hundreds of people in a packed lecture theatre and uh, took place between uh, several people. There was Peter Garsden who, as a child abuse lawyer, he he represents many, many survivors of abuse and is very well known in the Association of Child Abuse Lawyers. There was Joe McClay who is uh, an associate professor from uh, the University of Denver in Colorado. She was arguing against the motion uh, of mandatory reporting. Peter was arguing for it. And then there's Ben Matthews, who's an associate professor from the Australian Centre for Health Law Research at Queensland University of Technology. And he's been looking in at the last 10 years of data on mandatory reporting, which is... Fairly universal in Australia, in Australia, although slightly different in different um, different parts of Australia, different regions. So, I think without any further ado, I'm going to let you hear all three of them. It's quite a long podcast, therefore longer than normal, but I really think you'd appreciate it hearing the different arguments and the different issues. This is something that is not going to go away, and as I said in the intro, in the text introduction. Um, At the beginning, a vote was taken, and it was very strongly against mandatory reporting being um, a law of mandatory reporting being created. Um, Then the debate was had, and at the end, there was still a majority against, but it was much reduced. So it's not going to go away. This is very, very sort of pivotal as far as um, the professional community are concerned. So, without any further ado, here's the first podcast. Which is in favour of the motion, and it's uh, Peter Garston. Well, here I am today at quite a noisy Bascan Congress, but then again, with eight hundred delegates and uh, work going on outside, you're unlikely to get total silence. But my guest this time is Peter Garston, who's on the fore side in terms of uh, the mandatory de- reporting debate going on this afternoon. And we're going to talk to Peter a little bit about that. Forgive us for the noise, but we think it's very important to go ahead with this. So, Peter, welcome to the programme. Thank you. I know you've been a guest before, so people will recognise you from before. Uh, mandatory reporting. Now, you're speaking in favour of the motion, aren't you? I am. Do you want to just say a little bit about what your thoughts are on that?
1: Well, mandatory reporting is a system whereby if anybody suspects or witnesses abuse to a child, then they are under a legal duty to report it. Um, England is alone, England and Wales are alone in the civilised world. Uh, we're the only country, apart from New Zealand and one state in Canada uh, and Scotland, that. Uh, doesn't have a mandatory reporting law. Um, It it has been a law in the United States since 1963 uh, and uh, I was astonished when I discovered that um, it's a much needed change in legislation. So um, there are various different versions of mandatory reporting all around the world but the type that I'm advocating uh, will only apply to professionals who are looking after children, or should I say, staff who are in loco parentis to a child, uh, rather than the general public? Okay.
0: So let's just for before you move on, to spelling that list of people out to, for, for those listening to the programme. I mean, we're talking teachers, teachers, social workers, yes, care workers, yes. Um, Police officers, whilst children, they're, they're in police kind of care? Or?
1: Yes, any, anybody who is in loco parentis okay. to a child. Okay. Um, uh, it, it would also include cooks uh, and other ancillary workers at children's homes because okay. um, certainly in my work there are many examples of children disclosing what's happening to them to people not involved in their care because they find that less threatening. Gardeners, anybody who uh, works in an establishment uh, which looks after children, really, of, of any type.
0: How would it be, because the, obviously you're going to get asked about the gray areas and so on, but then inevitably people will, will want clarity about what's being proposed. What about if a child tells their neighbor something? and they don't say anything about it and later it's found out that if only they'd said something two months before when the child told them, maybe something could have been different. I mean that kind of thing, do you think? Well
1: there are some jurisdictions around the world where that is the law. Florida the state of Florida is one of them Mm in the United States Um, and um, since I've been at this conference, uh, I've been talking to Sue Berlowitz, the Assistant Children's Commissioner who, who was telling me that in one of the the famous uh, serious case reviews, it was the builders who notified the authorities uh, in one case. Um, So, uh, you know, I came to this conference thinking I had fixed ideas on on this subject, but the more people I talk to, the more I think, well, is my version absolutely the right one? Um, And and to a certain extent, it's immaterial. We are debating whether there should be mandatory reporting. Now my version only affects professionals and the reason I've advocated that is because one of the counter arguments is cost and this Conservative government in age of alleged austerity, whether we're still in that or not is obviously debatable, uh, wants to save money and balance the book, so do the Labour government. So um, if you introduce a less expensive version, at least get it through, You can, if it, if it doesn't work uh, then you can always extend it to the public as well at a later date.
0: What would you see? I love twisting questions here, but what would you see as the main objections to what you're proposing? What, what kind of? What are you expecting people to say?
1: Um, well, there is various counter arguments One is that it will affect uh, the way in which children um, disclose abuse to counsellors. In other words. Uh, they won't disclose anything because they'll be afraid that whatever they say will be passed on to the authorities and will end up in the prosecution. Um, the answer to that is, well, uh, that is the rule anyway. If you look at the, um, the, um, the rules, the ethics of the yeah. British Psychological Society, it says that if there is a child, Disclosing abuse to a counsellor, then they have to pass that on anyway.
0: Yeah, and in social work training, to be fair as well, all social workers are trained in child protection that when children say to them, Will you keep this a secret? the answer has got to be no. No. And so that, you know, that does fit into what you just said.
1: Yes. So I think that is a a clever but fallacious argument. Mm. Um, The major one is cost. Uh, The other one is that. because the service, the services will be swamped with trivial noise, then the serious abuse just won't get investigated. Um, however, I think the answer to that is limit it to professionals mm. rather than trust the general public to disclose everything and anything. Um, and firstly, and secondly, equip the services properly... So that they can cope with whatever arises. And you know, inevitably, there will be a cost, but at uh, what price the safety of children? You, you were talking about um, professionals,
0: and recently there's been kind of uh, the discussion about a potential initiative from the outgoing Prime Minister David Cameron, mm. uh, a law that he is uh, considering putting forward called uh, Willful Neglect. Mm. Uh, in other words, that would be punishable ultimately by a sort of a fairly long jail sentence for professionals that uh, failed to disclose uh, abuse of of a child willfully. Willfully, yes, willful neglect. Like, That's the problem. Well, I, I know. That, to my mind, that sounds terribly complicated and terribly mm. difficult to actually enforce. Would that that doesn't fit into what you're arguing? No, does it? Not
1: at all. No. no. My experience over the last twenty-one years is that disclosures that children make are tentative um, and half-hearted, and that there has to be a degree of intuition on the part of a skilled listener uh, to interpret what the child is saying. So, because they're afraid of the repercussions, um, uh, the the chances of showing willfulness uh, on the part of the on part of the professional would mean that it's a completely ineffective law. Um, it you know to prove malice on the part of a professional is practically impossible. Yeah, I don't. I, think but I thought
0: we had to clear polit- that up.
1: Political yeah. showboating. I thought it was an immediate reaction to the scandals of Rotherham social services and the yeah. council and the um, anything to deflect away from central government to local government. Um, mm. I, I'd call it a clever political. All, really. Now you
0: yourself are very well known as a, if you I put it this way, as a legal champion of, of survivors of mm-hmm. abuse. And I know over the, over the years that you've uh, put together something like twenty five major class actions when it's come to representation of survivors. Yes. I you say a lot of this conviction of yours about the man- need for mandatory reporting? Has that come from the experience you've gained from listening to these clients of yours?
1: Yeah, very much so um there are hundreds and hundreds of examples that I've come across um, of disclosures actual disclosures and complaints being made by children um, in institutions that have either been ignored uh, negligently or willfully <laughs> That's a bit of an irony. Um, uh, yeah, sure, I, sure, sure. I'm just uh, but 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 yeah been ignored, shall we say, Mm. Uh, but years ago when children weren't listened to and were thought to be uh, creatures in need of punishment and correction, which was the mood in the 50s and 60s after the last war, um, there were many examples. In fact, the first one I came across was where uh, Cheshire Police wanted to prosecute uh, the head warden in a children's home in the northwest. so convinced were they that he was to blame for allowing paedophiles to operate in his patch. I don't think there was any implication that he was also involved, at least if he was. Um, I didn't receive any allegations and the police didn't say so, but they wanted to prosecute him as long ago as 1996 for negligence, um, and they couldn't do so. Simply because there is no such law of criminal negligence. I mean, there is in some. You know, they prosecuted the the, uh, the captain in charge of the Costa Concordia, didn't they, for gross negligence? Mm. Um, and and in England, uh, in health and safety law, of course, there is now an offence of corporate manslaughter. Uh, there's also an offence of um, money laundering on the part of professionals. So we have. Uh, we have such a law for health and safety and money, but not children.
0: And for parents, of course, we have obviously many sanctions concerning neglect of their yes. children. Yes.
1: Yes. Yeah. But somehow, the, the the real the real experts uh, escape scot free. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a curious reflection on the state of our law when you find out that um, that there there is no such parallel law to to protect children in institutions. Okay.
0: Let's put it this way a little bit. I was talking to a previous guest, um, Professor Harry Ferguson there from Nottingham University, who's done an awful lot of his research to do with the way that in social workers, the way that social workers actually talk to children, listen to children, and how that's become not, not a, certainly not a dying art, but it's certainly become less part of the social work kind of, if you like, repertoire, the social worker, the, the, the way that social workers talk to children and how they do. And obviously, all of us think that it's very important that they do. How would that fit? And he would argue that the way to deal with that a lot more is training. If you want to put what you're suggesting against that, it's a certainly sort of sanctions, legal sanctions vis-a-vis training, against training. I mean, I, I guess he would argue that training must take priority as opposed to having kind of um, the sword of Damocles hanging Mm. over the professional in in the mandatory reporting. Because what we haven't talked about is there should be mandatory reporting, but what should be the sanctions if it's not complied with? Uh,
1: Well, uh, I've got some draft legislation uh, downstairs which was presented by Baroness Wormsley to the House of Lords only two, three months ago. Um, It never became law, but there's now going to be a debate on it. So there's some movement... But to turn your question on its yeah. head, I don't believe that you should try and criminalise professionals far from it. The last thing I want to do, and, and all my supporters want to do, is to prosecute you know, uh, highly, highly skilled professionals. Unless, of course, they're in it and they're to blame and they're part of the paedophile ring themselves. But Nobody would argue against that. No. The, the, the impetus is not to prosecute anybody, but to encourage people to pass on information because time and time again, these serious case reviews, we we see a lack of joined-up information. So, uh, the people we're trying to protect are not uh, those in charge, but those at the bottom of the pile who hear these disclosures. Or, uh, and and they're, you know, they're the ones. whistleblowers is the wrong word, but they're they're professionals who are hearing complaints, and they don't know where to go because if they pass them on to their line manager, will it. Uh, and the, the, the complaint isn't pursued, will it result in their dismissal? Uh, so isn't it easier to keep quiet? If they do pass it on and it's a private institution, uh, will that bring the institution down and will they lose their job? However, they wrestle with their own conscience and they are conflicted. So, so my version of managed reporting is a, a reporting facility that goes outside of the organisation. It bypasses the line manager and goes to an independent organisation.
0: We'll just pause while the lorry moves past outside, but no, carry on Peter, it's all right, we're
1: going to the The reporting uh, uh, communication goes outside of the organisation to, well we're proposing, the local authority designated officer who, which is a very small office at the moment and is limited to the teaching profession as I understand it, um, and t- uh, receives complaints on anybody not yeah, fit to work yeah, with children. Yeah, yeah. So, what well, the proposal is that 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 service is expanded considerably, mm-hmm. uh, and and is a, a conduit for all information from any of the services, so that it, to get around this joined lack of joined up thinking mm-hmm. idea, you know, how long have we been hearing about working together?
0: Oh, sure. And the 250 serious case reviews that occurred in the last year, there was not one of them that said that it failed because of too much communication.
1: No. It's always lack of communication, isn't it? And you can understand the mechanics of that, Mm. uh, of so many services, public services and private services, not operating together. If you have this one person to whom all the communication should go to, then that Ticks many many boxes, not only managed to reporting, mm. but also other child protection uh, problems. So that that uh, and the, the training argument is fundamental. Uh, so th- there needs to be training not only of the, all these new officers, but also the foot soldiers okay. uh, yeah. to explain to them how to recognise the signs, because you know children don't come out and say, "I was a I was." buggered by Mr X last Friday they approach it very tentatively and, and that's why the law of willful uh, neglect um, is the wrong one um, we have to make give the obligation for uh, knowing or suspecting or reasonably suspecting that abuse has taken place
0: Okay, uh, I'm, we're going to have to wrap it up shortly so sure. last question right? and obviously I wish you Good luck in your argument this afternoon. It'll be fascinating to see how it sort of pans out. Yes. Um, but if you like a message, you know, drawing upon the experiences you've had working with all the survivors groups and so forth and, and listening to them and listening to their stories and listening to their stories about the professionals who engaged with them, what kind of message would you like to give out to those professionals, be they social workers, teachers, police officers whatever, or care workers, um, that you feel is perhaps not heard enough. What sort of things would you like to say to them?
1: Well, the final concluding point of my presentation is assuming that the present system of mandatory professional obligations is not leading to disclosures and the passing on of information. How are we going to keep the children in, in institutions safe if we don't introduce a mandatory reporting law? Sorry, just to quickly
0: interrupt you, but do, do you feel that, that that's the best focus, the ones, the children in institutions, or just children generally who are considered to be at risk in the population?
1: Well. Obviously, the majority of abuse takes place in the home. We have to keep everybody, all the children safe. But if we're going to be talking about a practical mandatory reporting law, I think that we have to start with institutions okay. uh, because I think that is manageable. Ideally, I would like to impose the obligation for everybody, but I just don't think it's a practical legislative change.
0: Peter Garston, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. And now here's Joe McClay, who is uh, Dr Joe McClay from uh, the University of Colorado, who um, argues the fact that it's been a federal law in America since 1963 on mandatory reporting, but it just doesn't work anywhere near as efficiently as people hoped it would for a whole variety of reasons. So let's have a listen to Jill. Okay, welcome. Welcome. Now, I've got Jill McClay with me, who is going to speak in the debate this afternoon on mandatory reporting, or mandated reporting, as uh, it's called in the States, and uh, Jill's going to be speaking against the motion. So Jill, just, just to start with, could you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your background first, and then we'll get into what you're going to be doing here this afternoon.
2: Sure. So my name is Jill McClay, I'm an assistant research professor at the University of Colorado School of Medicine. I work in the Kemp Center for Child Abuse um, Prevention and Treatment. Okay,
0: and what, I mean, how did you come across the subject? Is this something you've been involved with for a while or people are just saying, go on Jill, go and talk about that?
2: Yes, no, no, I I, um, it is something I've been involved with for a while. I was very fortunate um, not far after out of school to be able to be engaged in What is probably one of the largest social science grants um, ever received it was called strong communities for children the aim of the initiative which um, the principal investigator on that initiative was gary melton he has been a um, significant proponent um, or opponent i should say of mandatory reporting Um, and he was spearheading an attempt to carry out the 1993 u.s advisory board on child abuse and neglects report um, which recommended a complete rehaul basically of our child protection system um, to move toward a neighborhood neighborhood-based strategy. So I kind of came in on the ground floor of that effort. And so I very quickly learned about the um, pros and cons of mandatory reporting, about the um, problems that are created by sometimes mandatory reporting, and the incompatibility, I believe, of a voluntary and a mandatory child protection system.
0: Now, I mean, do you normally speak about this, or this is just one of a range of subjects that come across your desk? It's,
2: it's a range of subjects that come across my desk, but I, there's rarely anything that I talk about where this doesn't come into the conversation, because when you talk about neighborhood-based child protection, you have to educate people on why we need that type of child protection and part of that involves explaining why the system we have now doesn't work.
0: Okay, let's take it back a little bit because, I mean, mandated reporting has been federally kind of uh, a federal issue since about the 1963, I believe. And so what? why do you think it was brought in then? What, what, it, was there scandals occurring that people thought, oh, and then they just overdid, in your view, the kind of legislation?
2: Yeah, I, I think it actually was, um, was brought in with, with good reason because the, the information that was available at the time suggested it was a good strategy. So um, Henry Kemp, who is the namesake of where I work, and I am a huge fan and have the utmost respect for what he has done and what he did in his lifetime um, on behalf of children, he wrote a study um, that was published called Batter Child Syndrome. And in this study, he discussed um, what he was seeing as a physician of situations where it appeared that children had been physically abused. And he, from his research that he did with, I think it was about 300 or so um, patients, um, he was starting to see these trends. And one of the trends was, is that the caregivers of these children typically had, what was the exact phrase he believed, um, he used to believe it was deficits, deficits in character. Um, what, which what he was referring to basically was kind of like mental health concerns, right? And so the idea, if that, if there were these few hundred cases and they were being carried out by parents who were suffering from, you know, mental health concerns, that sort of thing, then the idea of, of case finding, of finding those bad parents, quote unquote, and, either getting services for those parents or removing the child from the home seemed like a logical strategy. Mm-hmm. When he proposed this idea of mandatory reporting, he was referring to physicians who saw patients who, were, who appeared to be victims, and what his concern was is that doctors were seeing this and not doing anything about it. They were reluctant to do anything about it. So he hadn't it.
0: got in mind the wider public sector.
2: Exactly. Exactly. Okay. That that's something that has happened over time.
0: You propose, and you will continue, you will propose in your um, argument this afternoon that it doesn't work. Right. Could you just say a little bit about some of the reasons why you think it doesn't work?
2: Sure, I can. And you know, it's interesting when I hear people talking about mandatory reporting, quite often the conversation is about implementation and challenges with implementation. And, and I can talk about that, um, we could go there, but I think there's a bigger issue. Right? You can argue to your blue in the face about implementation, but my issue is with the, the design. The fundamental logic, theory, framework behind the policy is bankrupt. Right? We have this, the idea is built on Kemp's paper, Kemp's study. Um, and there are so many holes in that um, because we know so much more now than what the information he had available to him then. then. So for one thing, let's take scale. Right? We, it, there's not a few hundred children per year that suffer from abuse or neglect. And first, and first of all, well, we've got that. We've got the numbers issue, right? We're, we're talking about millions in the United States. We're not talking about a few hundred. So case finding is not as, as simple as it was conceived to be. That's one issue. There's a scope issue, right? His focus was on physical abuse and then later also included sexual abuse. But what we know now is that neglect is much more common than sexual abuse or physical abuse. And we also have emotional abuse to contend with. And we also now have quite a debate about whether um, interpersonal violence and witnessing interpersonal violence is also a type of abuse or neglect. So we have a much more expanded definition and a better understanding. We also have a better understanding now of the precipitance to child abuse and neglect. We know that there's not usually this one time awful horrific event, that child abuse and neglect is quite complex. We know that child abuse and neglect um, happens as a result of parental stress. We know it's much more common among people living in poverty. The the reasons that people abuse or neglect their children are not just because they have defects in character. And so the strategies that we have in place to help parents or help Mm -hmm. children do not fit the context. We've had a great social change since the 1960s. We have a lot more single parents. We have a lot more mobile families. And so the the family, the parent is disconnected from their relatives. They don't have sources for economic or social support. People are more isolated than they've ever been. These are the precipitants to child abuse and neglect. When you think about that, when you think about the scope, when you think about the scale, and you think about the origins of the policy, you realize the policy is based on reasoning that we now know is false.
0: Okay. You have described it very accurately, you know, a lot of the actual kind of backdrop to child abuse and neglect. And you've described it in a sense from the community as much as. Now, my understanding is that there is an argument looking at institutional Care right. and all those who are charged with caring for children in institutional settings. Right. Would the same? Would you have the same conclusion about its failure to be effective in that setting?
2: Sure. so my my personal opinion is that mandatory reporting is not necessary in that situation. I think what is necessary is um, the public service announcements, a huge like, a public health approach where we are educating people from every possible angle that we can on um, the precipitance to and er- a correct understanding because the way that we advertise child abuse and neglect is this horrific horrible um, thing and, and not that it's not but it makes people feel like they are helpless that there is nothing they can do but pick up the phone and call they can't go over and ask do you need help they pick up the phone and say, this family needs help. And do they get it? That's a whole nother conversation. But the issue that with the um but, you know, people like coaches, tutors, people, you know, children who are living in institutions. Um, again, I think it's an educational campaign type of issue. I think just because you have a mandatory reporting law doesn't mean people are going to report. Look at the United States; we know that there's a gross underreporting of child abuse and neglect. We know that that there are a lot of people who um, intentionally practice civil disobedience who don't report because they're concerned about the harm that that will cause to the child. Um, I I think if people are given options of things that they can do um, and that might involve picking up the phone, it it might not, um, I I think we'd be better off and that children would be safer. I think we need to create environments that are safe for children, that demand safety of children. However, I will say that if I had to concede anything on mandatory reporting, it would be that, and that is because these are children who are in the state's... Care or by proxy, they're in the state's care, and so I do think the state, therefore, is responsibility is responsible for those children. And you know, if you are going to have any type of mandatory reporting law, that would be the place where it would be. I don't think it's necessary, and I don't think that it is per se helpful. But if a point has to be conceded um, for political reasons or what have you, I think that would be the place. It could be, but whether or not it's going to help in the long run, it's going to help children to be safer, I, I, I don't think so. Is it, it going to make us feel difficult. better and feel like we're doing something to make children be safer? Yes, I think it will. Very
0: difficult to measure. Yes. Um, I think I mean, you will be aware that um, the, the David Cameron in this country is talking about introducing a a, a law. It's called willful neglect, in which he, any professional that fails to disclose abuse if they're aware of it, be subject to punishments ultimately up to five years in prison how do you feel about that
2: i i think it would be a huge mistake um i I do and i think there one it's just it again your implementation issues here which we can um which are certainly important i think how do you prove quote unquote that someone was aware right you have tons of willfully aware you have situations all the time where horrible things end up happening to children and turns out, you know, people were aware of it, but they didn't feel like they had proof or they didn't have enough information. Or was that enough neglect to calculate? How do you define neglect? And how do you educate everyone on this is the definition of neglect and get everyone to agree? And so how you're ever going to prove, I mean, maybe there's a handful of cases where you'll be able to say, this person very clearly knew that this person, this child was being abused or neglected. And so therefore, um, you know, we'll, we'll take them to court. But I think it's to, to do that, to find those one or two cases, what you take away from the ability of the community to support that child and family, what you take away when people live in fear of somebody reporting them, are they going to actively seek help?
0: I think the issue, for me, I wonder if you'd agree, Mm -hmm. is that that obviously we would all put children first, whatever happens, Uh Uh, unfortunately can't put parents first even though they would be particularly in need, but we put children first. Right. For me, when in practice, some of the most difficult, and if you like, heart-wrenching cases were the ones that I would put into the category of neglect by omission, as opposed to willful neglect or, well, deliberate neglect or whatever in which you had a parent who loved their children, genuinely loved their children but just couldn't be a parent, Uh, for you know, the usual things such as summer clothes in the middle of winter, a terrible diet, turning up at school hungry all the time, they didn't get their immunizations, they didn't get their hearing checks, they didn't get their eye checks, their teeth were terrible, you know, the whole thing, but they loved their children. And no matter how much help was thrown at the family, whether it's, you know, family support, help, putting their arm, metaphorically arms around them, whatever, modelling, you name it, they still really couldn't come up with it. Now, I've come across professionals in situations like that who, if you like, prioritised the fact that they loved their children first because they did and would carry on and on and on and on, not really perhaps pushing the button, if you want to put it that way, reporting. How do you feel about situations like that?
2: Sure, and and I think that's the majority of situations. I mean, again, we know more now than we did when mandatory reporting came about about what child abuse and neglect look like. We know the majority of the cases are neglect. We also know that most states, or many states anyway, um omit poverty as a type of neglect that must be mandatory reported and then is investigated. Fascinating that even though most or a lot of states take poverty out saying you cannot you know investigate a case because of poverty, and yet still what seventy eight percent of the cases that are reported are for neglect, and the majority of those are still poverty related. So I think that's the fundamental mismatch between the policy we have and what families need in order to get a care for their children. If we're truly, if we are really committed to the convention on the rights child, conventions on the rights of the child's call for the best interest of the child, if the parent loves their child, the child loves the parent, then our goal is to keep them together and to give that family the resources they need to succeed. Now, we could say, despite the billions of dollars that get spent on child protection services in the United States, which is not enough, I don't think it's possible to arm CPS with enough resources to meet the demand of the families they are serving. And I think it is an unfair burden that we place on child protective services to be able to expect them to single-handedly solve these multifaceted problems that families face. You ask a family who has been investigated by CPS, are there mental health issues in this family? Are there substance abuse issues in this family? Is there poverty in this family? Are there um, there domestic violence in this family? And what is your answer? Yes, 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 and yes. So a one-shot deal, intervention, is not going to fix all of those problems. And a formal service, I don't believe, can do that.
0: There could be, I, I take your point, and I actually agree with you, basically, but there also could be an intermediate step, and I want. I don't know, are you aware? In this country recently, we've introduced things called drugs and alcohol courts. Mm-hmm. No lawyers. And mm-hmm. effectively, so, mm-hmm. and one same judge sits, sees the family every couple of weeks, mm-hmm. you know, and actually, well, if you like, kind of um, shotguns, the, the whole kind of plan. Right. Um, and early days, but it seems to have some effect, beneficial effect. To my mind, reporting a family so that they would get that kind of help might well be in a gray area from how you're arguing things.
2: Okay, so what you're talking about is alternatives, basically, to mandatory reporting. Still or still in the system, Okay, and so this is kind of like this concept that has become um, popular in the United States and other countries as well, called um, differential response, right, DR. And I think with the differential response, in my mind, it is a, what is that saying, a distinction in search of a difference. Um, You have two different tracks within Child Protective Services, where you have the investigatory track, and you have what they call an alternative response. Right, And so, social services can screen a situation and decide whether or not the safety issues are such that an investigation is needed, or whether this is a relatively low-risk situation and this situation is better suited for services. I still ask how that family is supposed to draw that distinction when the services are being offered by CPS. CPS has, by CPS's own admission, an adversarial relationship with the families. That's the whole reason they did differential response, was in recognition of the adversarial relationship they have. I don't think by the same institution, which is responsible for investigating, reporting, et cetera, child abuse and neglect, is capable of offering these alternative responses. Now something like a drug court, where it's offered through a different entity, I, I don't think it's a bad idea. Um, the problem is is having enough of those resources to meet the demand, number one. And number two, if it's mandated, if going to these drug courts and that sort of thing is mandated, are you going to get the same type of response as you are if it's voluntary? It's still mandated. And if you don't go, does that mean that you're investigated?
0: And not being diverted, like we are here at a very busy and noisy Congress right. in the back of
2: <laughs> Lots of construction.
0: <laughs> but hopefully I think people can hear us all right. And I think it's working out. Okay, Jill, look, let's, um, we'll come to the end of the interview-ish, all right, Maybe. but I um, Messages time. Okay. yes. Here you are talking to, oh, I don't know, let's imagine you're talking to 300 million sort of public service workers, social workers, teachers, Mm. staff in residential care situations and so forth, okay, who are going to be the subject of this should something happen, you know, legislatively. Right. What would your message be?
2: My message would be that... There are alternatives. There are alternatives to mandatory reporting. In my mind, what we need is mandatory support, not mandatory reporting. Um, And I could talk till I'm blue in the face about those alternatives, but I just want to briefly discuss two, two issues, if that's okay, because I think they are relevant to the folks that you're talking about. Um, one and there has been, you know, there have been proposals for an alternative to um, a mandatory reporting system, whereby you have a child protection agency, but you also have a person whom you could call an, an ombudsman um, for children. You know, you can the communities would have this person who was
0: communities right because here we have children's commissioners.
2: Yes, and well, that's, I, I that's actually... That's a
0: national figure, though.
2: Yes, yes, and you would have subsidiaries that were based in communities, so think about it that way. And I, I think I read something about a British equivalent of that that you recently put into place, where you can call a, a, a child protection person. We, um, we,
0: yeah, we have um, ch- children's safeguarding boards yes. in this country. Yes. Each authority has one, in which, and they are, they are they call to account... The different disciplines—police, health, education, right. social yes. services, yes. and the voluntary sector—in yes. ter- in matters to do with child protection, and they hold them to account and they challenge them. Right. I chair one of these myself.
2: Yes, which is we don't so, we don't really have per se an equivalent of that in the United States. I think one of the questions that often comes up is if we don't have mandatory reporting, what about the cases of extreme abuse? What do you do? And I um, and I do um, readily admit. I mean, the data shows it. That these cases exist. They are a small percentage, but they exist. And you know, we have to, in the best interest of children, be in a situation where we can serve those children. Um, and so that's why I think something like that, where you can, not a mandatory reporting, but you have a person that you can go to, that you can discuss the situation. And then that person or board is responsible for looking into the situation, but they are not CPS. They are not the child protection services. They are outside. If the situation is deemed to be a threat to the child's safety, then CPS gets involved, okay. and only then. So, so you have kind of an intermediary
0: in the community, or a, right. a body in the community. Ideally, in the slightly community, slightly separate.
2: Okay. Right.
0: And the second. And the
2: second one is my um, own belief about what a proper child protection strategy should look like. And anyone who wants to know the details of that can look to the 1993 U.S. Advisory Board on Child Abuse and Neglect strategy, which has been implemented only once. Um, the findings were very positive. Um, the latest issue of child abuse and neglect, the March 2015 issue, has a series of articles that report on the findings of that initia- initiative. It, um, and now there are several pilot projects around trying to replicate those findings. But the whole idea is a vo- developing a voluntary-based child abuse and neglect. Look, the problem is huge. If we leave it to CPS, which has some of the best people in the world working there, but under-resourced and always will be, if we leave it to them to protect children, if we think that all we need to do is pick up a phone and call and report that our neighbor is having issues with her children, what have you, they're going to school after she leaves for work, whatever the issue may be, then we are never, ever going to be able to protect children at the scope and the scale that we need. We need a public health approach to child abuse and neglect.
0: Jill McLean, thank you very much indeed for joining us.
2: Thank you for having me.
0: Right, so that was Jill's argument. And I'd now like you to have a listen to Associate Professor Ben Matthews from Australian Centre for Health Law Research at Queensland. Um, Now, Ben's been looking at the data for, um, well, 10 years' worth of data from various Australian territories. And um, I think he's in favour of mandatory reporting, but it's an interesting argument and an interesting um, subject for him to have done the research in, and I think it's well worth a listen to. Um, Let's just listen to Ben. He he conducted research into mandatory reporting law, and he he includes a comparative analysis of states and countries who have mandatory reporting laws uh, against those that don't. So let's see how much he's found out and where he concludes. Ben Matthews. Okay, well, I'm delighted to be joined by um, Ben Matthews, who's the Associate Professor from the Australian Centre for Health Law Research at uh, Queensland University of Technology. Now, Ben's conducted research into mandatory reporting law and he draws on over about 10 years of data. He's been involved himself for 12 or 13 years. And we're going to include a, it includes a sort of a comparative analysis of states and countries who have mandatory reporting laws and with those who don't. So he looks at that kind of comparison. And I think the topic, if I'm right, Ben will correct me in a moment, but if I'm right, Ben's the topic he'd be interested in actually focusing on is do we have reasonable evidence that mandatory reporting law has an impact on identifying cases of child sexual abuse. Welcome Ben. Welcome Thanks David, to the nice to be here. So just give us a little bit from the beginning, how you got started on this particular subject, what what, what drew you to it? Sure,
3: well I first uh, had a background in looking at legal issues in both responding to and even identifying uh, cases of child sexual abuse which as uh, everyone knows, is a a widespread and damaging phenomenon. And it's a particularly difficult social phenomenon for us to deal with as a society because children tend not to disclose when they're sexually abused. And obviously perpetrators do not uh, disclose their own abuse of children either because it's a serious criminal offence. So one thing I wanted to look at was whether mandatory reporting laws and other methods of response are actually effective or comparatively effective in identifying more cases of child sexual abuse than other methods.
0: Okay, So you've come to this congress filled with data and you've heard some debate and discussion here which um, I think people found very interesting but possibly not nearly enough in terms of time or depth analysis of the subject. Is that a fair point?
3: I think that's a reasonable point and I think it's largely because uh, mandatory reporting laws take different forms child abuse and neglect takes different forms and any, uh, you know, any uh, full coverage of all the issues about whether or not to have a mandatory reporting law of some form for different forms of child abuse and neglect and what outcomes that might lead to is a very complex endeavour which needs to look at different legal systems, different theories, and different empirical evidence about what actually happens. Just a piece of cake then. Piece of cake, piece (laughs) of cake. But I think the first thing that we need to do is to realize that where a jurisdiction has some form of mandatory reporting law, it is just one part of a whole child protection system. These laws are not aimed primarily at preventing abuse. Okay, that's a misnomer. They are a tertiary aspect of a public health approach to child abuse and neglect and child sexual abuse in particular. So they're aimed at identifying cases of serious abuse here, sexual abuse, which otherwise are much less likely to come to the attention of helping agencies.
0: You've accumulated a lot of data. You've accumulated obviously a lot of experience and you've probably talked to hundreds of people in the field, etc. Have you managed to come to any conclusions yet in terms of the benefits of it? I know it's different countries, I know it's different legislation, I know it's different jurisdiction, I totally take that point, but you must have come to some conclusions yourself about the benefits and possibly let's talk about the downside as well sure sure. so if you could take sort of a little bit of both
3: here's my conclusion in a nutshell if i was to advise any government in any society and here we're talking about developed economies okay and here we're also talking just for the purpose of today's discussion about sexual abuse sound mandatory reporting legislation plus effective mandatory reporter education does get you more identified cases of child sexual abuse. Okay. End a story. That's the sum outcome of 13 years of research into this field.
0: So that, that's a majority conclusion, let's put it that way on your part. Yeah? That's,
3: that's my conclusion from looking at the situation in multiple countries, from looking at different data sources, and from doing different kinds of experiment with empirical data.
0: Okay, now I was going to ask you about that because I want to ask you a question from a scientific point of view, if you'd like, or from a social scientific point
3: of view. Absolutely,
0: because you must have looked at the contraindications here. You must have looked at uh, what what arguments were put up against it. Sure. Um, could you say just to be fair and balanced what they were, and, and, and maybe how you um, how you considered them?
3: Yeah. There are some popularly made arguments against managed reporting legislation. And uh, I'll be quite candid with you. Some of those arguments have some force. But I think they have particular force for other forms and lesser extents of child abuse or neglect. Um, And they do not have really much force at all. Or the particular situation of child sexual abuse or even for example for severe child physical abuse so the the key one of the key arguments against mandatory reporting laws is that they will lead to a blowout or a, an, an intolerable surge of reports of child adversity okay now um, depending on the jurisdiction and depending on the system and the soundness of the law and the soundness of the training and all the other associated s- systemic uh, support measures to deal with uh, reports of abuse, um, there may be and there has been some periods in some jurisdictions where there have been dramatic surges of reports. But one of the benefits of doing an in-depth empirical study with 10 years of data, across eight jurisdictions in one country is that you can see the exact nature of those surges of reports. Now one thing we found in our study was that in Australia there was a particular period of a surge in reports but that happened in one state by one reporter group of in particular one kind of child maltreatment and that was police reports of children being exposed to domestic violence. Now where that happens proper public health monitoring of what is going on with your child protection system can identify a problem and then steps can be taken to remedy that and that's exactly what happened in New South Wales.
0: So there was obviously ultimately um, kind of an identification that that was a problem that had been exaggerated but certainly kind of there had been far too much kind of attention on it in that respect. I mean, I'm thinking here, for example, in uh, the UK, in England, for example, there's been many, many publicly reported cases where domestic violence has led to death, where people have complained to the police and allegedly they haven't taken enough action and so forth, and there's been a backlash. And that produced an absolute peak of activity where every tiny, possibility of domestic violence got preferred and therefore the system got overwhelmed I'm guessing it's in that same kind of frame that you were thinking about
3: Precisely,
0: precisely okay. yeah.
3: um, and, and this is where very sound reporter training is essential because if a reporter group for example whether it's police officers or teachers or doctors or nurses which are the key groups who are traditionally made to be mandated reporters under legislation If they are not told and educated about identifying cases or detecting possible cases and reporting where necessary and not reporting where not necessary, then you may have some unintended or undesirable uh, reporting practice. Um, So you cannot just legislate mandated reporting and think that everything's going to be fine. You have to prepare reporters properly by training them adequately. And you have to um, also resource the system to take in um, what will be uh, an initial uh, extra number of reports, which is what you would expect. I
0: want to drill down a little bit, if I may, because I want you to imagine now that you're talking to Betty and Billy Smith at number 6 Smith Avenue, you know, any any town. Whom are you thinking have to be mandated to be the reporters uh, and and what responsibilities and possible sanctions are being considered to be part of that package? Okay, that's a great question.
3: There are different models of mandatory reporting legislation and that's one thing that everyone needs to be very clear on. So you can have a very narrow mandatory reporting law which requires reports only, for example, of sexual abuse. Um, and that's the situation in Western Australia. Okay, You can have another reporting law which requires reports of serious physical abuse and sexual abuse. That's the situation in Victoria, for example, and also in my home state now of Queensland. Now, those reporting laws can then limit that reporting duty in a further way by saying that only selected... Uh, groups of professionals have to report. Traditionally, it's doctors, teachers, nurses, police. Then you might have a very broad reporting law in another jurisdiction, which requires reports to be made of all kinds of child abuse and neglect. So not just physical abuse and sexual abuse, but emotional abuse, neglect, and exposure to domestic violence. And some jurisdictions laws even require a very broad um, list of reporters, okay, so lots more kinds of professionals um, beyond the four core groups and some jurisdictions are broader still and they require reports by all citizens.
0: Yeah, that's of course partly what I would just like you to sort of clarify here in, in terms of because I mean we're obviously, every practitioner in child protection would like to encourage familial reporting if they felt the child was at risk, Mm. which is a hugely emotive thing, we know. Especially if it's grandparents or immediate family, you know, in that respect, sort of talking about, you know, their own kith and kin. But then you broaden it out a little bit to sort of cousins, you know, that visit from time to time, and even then you broaden it out to neighbors. Now, we would always encourage anybody, as I'm sure you would agree, in the community to um, report what's going on if they thought a child was at risk. But there is the other end of the spectrum, which essentially you could probably call Chinese street committees, where effectively there is community um, vigilance and community watching everything that happens in that street you know the kind of uh, neighborhood watch kind of things and so forth now that's to my mind at the other end of the spectrum and to the extent you know you would say if they thought a child was been hurt they should report it too of course they should but the question is process and the question is under what sanction under what legislative umbrella yep. i mean a few thoughts on that kind of thing would be helpful sure
3: my own personal view having looked at multiple different systems in multiple different countries is that uh, you're better off imposing a legislative duty on a selected group of professionals. Um, the reason for that is that these professionals are coming into contact with children in the normal course of their work. They're well placed to detect indicators of serious abuse and serious neglect. Okay? And here we're talking particularly about sexual abuse. Um, They also should have training to further enable them to detect and discharge their reporting duties. Now, I think that personally is a, a better, sounder model than requiring all citizens to report under threat of a legal penalty. Now, another thing to take into account is that some mandatory reporting laws across the world do not actually contain a penalty for failure to report. Okay. So New South Wales in 2010 removed the penalty for failure to report. That was partly done out of a, a suspicion that the penalty in that jurisdiction was uh, to some extent encouraging hypersensitive reporting for fear of being penalised. Now I think um, one message I'd like to give is that The essential purpose of a mandatory reporting law is not to police non-compliance by reporters. It's to encourage appropriate reports of suspected cases of significant abuse, okay? So I think people can get a bit too hung up on this question of being prosecuted for failure to report. There are very, very few situations where a reporter has been been prosecuted under a mandatory reporting law for failing
0: to report. Okay, let me just ask you the obvious then at yep. that point. If there are no sanctions as such for not reporting, why is it mandatory? I'm very pleased you asked that.
3: The very first reporting laws were enacted in the United States.
0: you know why they were, they were enacted? Uh, it was explained, I believe, with one of our other guests,
3: the Kemp thing. Hardly. So what was happening was that doctors were encountering cases of infants being severely battered. Okay, they were encountering infants with fractures of the skull, subdural hematoma, fractures of the long bones in the thighs. Many of these doctors either did not suspect parental battering or they had a suspicion about it but they just could not bring themselves to report it. They averted their gaze. The reason for having a legislative duty is so that people do not avert their gaze and so that with education, they are encouraged to make appropriate reports. The key about legislation is that it helps to set a new social norm about what is acceptable and desirable conduct in society. The laws help to encourage people to take the right step. The laws also Protect reporters. So, right now, unless you've got a separate legislative protection for those who make reports, their identity as the reporter might not be protected to the extent that it should be.
0: I understand what you're saying. I mean, I still think there will be people, of course, who will actually say, well, if there's if there's no actual sanction, then we should be looking at education rather than law enforcement. Mm-hmm. but you know, but the the purpose of it all is the same. People would always want the same outcome, I believe, in this argument. I imagine you would agree. It's just the road to it that people possibly differ about. Is that fair? Well. Because people would always not want children to be sexually abused, I think we can. I think, except for the perpetrators. I think most people.
3: But we see, and we've seen in your country, mm. or in the UK, mm. very recently, endemic child sexual abuse, where multiple people in positions of high authority knew about it. Mm. And they didn't act appropriately, did they? Not so term, I think no. law helps to set social norms and overcome. Cultural problems in not placing the child and a severely abused child at the center of our concern.
0: I, I, I Yeah, okay. I, I'm, I'm putting this to you because it, You know, I, I need to hear the kind of conclusions because you've been wondering most of the studying of this Sure. But sometimes you have life move on situations where you have a major piece of social learning due to a, a, a great disaster or due to, a, in a plane crash, you know, or whatever, people find things out. And for example, I mean, it used to be legal in this country to own slaves. Life moves on. It used to be legal in this country for a man to be able to beat his wife and children. Life moved on because essentially you know, society changed and educatively things changed. I mean, yes, there were anti-slavery laws, but that was more of an afterthought. It actually virtually petered out for a while. So all I'm saying is, with the big scandals that you were referring to here, whether it was the celebrities doing the the abusing or whatever, people have learned an awful lot about what not to do. And I'm just wondering if that is not part of a counter-argument for education rather than enforcement.
3: I think if you only rely on education and don't also embed certain norms in law, it's not as holistic an approach, and, it, and it's not as powerful a response. If you don't embed certain things in law, people would say, well, there's not a law requiring this, there's not a law against this, you know, when, when uh, people are prohibited from beating their wives. Okay? People are now prohibited in criminal laws from severe physical punishment of their children. That wasn't the case previously. Education alone can't do everything.
0: Final sentence, Ben, about it, All right. Well, I mean, first, and maybe in that sentence, tell people how they can get in touch with you if you want. Sure, sure. Um,
3: Well, most of my uh, publications are available on my ePrints page. My email address is b.matthews, M-A-T-H-E-W-S, at Q-U-T dot E-D-U dot A-U. So you can access most of my publications. There's at least 40 publications that I've, uh, produced over the last uh, decade and a bit about this. Um, and uh, some of these are, are pretty germane to this context. Some of these uh, look at three different kinds of evidence which show the impact of mandatory reporting. So for example, you can look at what happens with numbers of reports and numbers of identified cases for a period before the law and a period after the law. Okay, and we found that we do have a substantial increase in numbers of reports and identified cases when that happens. You can also compare a jurisdiction with another jurisdiction where only one of them has a mandatory reporting law. And I did that just recently and published that in 2014. Right.
0: I'll tell you what I'd like to suggest, then as a sort of final point. Uh, this podcast, when you are listening to it, dear listeners, will be probably in a few weeks from now when we've actually produced it. Maybe I can persuade Ben to do a guest blog to accompany it with links to what he's talking about because I think taking in an awful lot of what he's just said might be a bit difficult if you haven't actually got something in front of you to write it. I'll be glad to. All right. Ben Matthews, thanks very much indeed. You're welcome. Well, there we are. I hope you uh, managed to hang on for all of that because I thought it was really worth it. The debate is going to be reproduced again and again over the few years to come. Um, And let's see whether or not any new government, because, of course, we're just about to have a general election, any new government brings in this law or tries to bring in this law. The arguments are quite intense. So thank you for listening. Thanks, as always, to All But Digital Media. Uh, over the next weeks, as I said, I'm going to um, bring in some other subjects and some other speakers from that Congress because um, it was very, very well attended and very well thought through. So I'm going to uh, allow you to hear that because I've done another two, three, four interviews from that and plenty, plenty more to come. So thanks ever so much for listening. Remember SpeakPipe. Let me know your views. And also, you remember, you can download it from iTunes, from Stitcher, from PodFeed, as well as the website uh, socialworldpodcast.com. Many thanks again for listening. See you next time.